For the week of April 10th, 2014, this is The Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Good day to you all. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media here in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you can pick up the happiness in my voice, but I'm coming to you from my new digs on 7th Street in D.C., which, unlike my other home office, has massive uh, windows, which I can look at the happenings outside in my neighborhood of Shaw. So it's really nice being here. I must say it's a lot louder, so if you hear sirens and horns, you'll know why. Um, we may have to experiment with where my equipment goes. But for now, I've got the sun on my face and the same wonderful voices in my earbuds. In downtown D.C., it is Catherine Hamilton, a partner with 38 North Solutions. Catherine, what is new and exciting in your world? And let me guess, baseball. Oh, yes. Jason Worth, grand slammer in the eighth last night. I mean, nothing is more beautiful that, than that in the spring. Were you at the game? No, I was watching it at home. You were also in New York this week, right? Yes, I was with Jigger. And that brings me to Jigger, who is normally based in New York. He's an investor, author, entrepreneur, clean tech pundit. Jigger, which of those things do you feel most like today? Well, you know, I have to say that I can't imagine that there's a single person who wasn't a diehard UConn fan already that picked them. How did we get from baseball to a Bloomberg Finance Summit to basketball? Well, you know, I just like and then the UConn women just won. So I'm just like, I don't know, too much love in UConn right now. <laughs> Do you have like a specific rivalry against UConn? Well, I went to Illinois. Illinois traditionally had a good basketball program, not this year. but So I was rooting for the Big Ten teams, and we had three, I think, going into the Elite Eight, Michigan State, Michigan, and Wisconsin, and all three of them lost their games into the Final Four. And we have a special guest today. I'm not sure if he's an expert on basketball or baseball, but he certainly knows a thing or two about energy. Uh, we've been trying to get him on the show for a while he is in New York City taking a break from uh, a conference to join us. Usually in Colorado, now in New York, it's John Kreitz, the managing director of the Rocky Mountain Institute. John, how are you? I'm terrific. Thanks so much for your invitation to join the show today, Stephen. And, uh, and nice to talk with you as well, Catherine and Jigger. Absolutely. And uh, I know that you were on a panel the other day with Jigger at the Bloomberg Summit talking about the subject that we're going to be discussing today. So I hope that you didn't uh, burn yourselves out before we got you on the podcast. No, I, I think we just started the conversation, so there's plenty to talk about on, on the topic here. All right. Well, RMI recently put out this fantastic study on the economics of solar combined with storage. The results don't exactly look good for power companies. And in the first part of the show, we'll be devoted to understanding the study and talking with John about uh, how much grid defection matters. Our second segment will be devoted to a recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change about, yes, catastrophic climate change. And then our third topic of conversation is about what the White House could do to support new financing structures like yield codes and master limited partnerships. And if we're not out of breath by the time we finish up, we'll close the show by telling you something you may not know. Okay, first, let's turn to the recent Rocky Mountain Institute report. Call it what you will. Utility in a box, the one-two punch, or good old-fashioned solar storage. It's clear that batteries and solar are getting to a cost point where they're starting to be taken seriously in select markets. 
The key phrase there is select markets. But researchers at RMI, the accounting firm Cohn Resnick and software company Homer Energy, asked what it would take for that solar storage combo to be competitive, not just in a state like Hawaii, where electricity prices are extremely high, but in a coal state like Kentucky, with retail prices 20% below average. The answer? The combo could be at price parity by the end of the decade for commercial systems and by 2035 for residential. If that sounds like a long way off, consider that the average age of America's power plants is 30 years, and that means a significant fleet turnover in the coming decades. With solar and storage competitive in a non-traditional clean energy market like Kentucky, utilities could be in for a big surprise. This modeled outcome, of course, depends a lot on market conditions and technology improvements, and John Kreitz is going to help us understand uh, what those conditions are. So, John, what were the different scenarios you started playing with as you looked at the competitiveness of solar and storage? You had a number of different scenarios that you outlined. Sure. That's a great place to start, Stephen. So we we analyzed four different scenarios. The first, uh, which was our, our uh, base case, really took a look at reasonable progression of solar and storage costs over time and inverter costs as well um, relative to utility rates. And on that, we we focused on levels that got to us by uh, got to to roughly about $2 a watt, depending on residential or commercial, by 2020, that also got to roughly the $200 per kilowatt hour range by 2020 on the battery side. Um, we, we also analyzed, though, a much more uh, aggressive technology case that said, suppose we hit our Department of Energy sunshot goals and battery targets, and we got down to the level of roughly $1.25 to $1.50, depending on uh, residential versus commercial um, and solar, but uh, about $100 per kilowatt hour on the uh, battery side. And then we also looked at a scenario that, that said, well, what if we match demand uh, and reduce demand so that we minimize the amount of capital required? And, and to do that, we used some studies that helped us understand what's the, what are the reasonable cost-effective limits of energy efficiency and demand response deployed and, and got to roughly a 30% reduction um, in demand. The interesting thing is when you tie those two cases together, the, the supply side case where we have aggressive technology reduction alongside the demand side case where we couple that with energy efficiency, um, you have a fourth case that starts to minimize the amount of capital and, and progresses these systems into um, uh, very favorable economics in short order. Um, so this is, uh, was a very um, uh, important outcome from our study, and basically what we saw is that within the different regions of the country, in particular the two that are, are moving fastest beyond Hawaii, so the West Coast and the, the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, in the Mid-Atlantic um, we moved from a situation, a base case, where about 20% of the customers see favorable economics uh, by 2024, so within 10 years' time, to a case where uh, we have about 80% of the customers seeing favorable economics by 2024 under our most aggressive scenario. 
that's even more dramatic on the West Coast. In the three states of California, Arizona, and New Mexico, we moved from a situation where we've got, again, roughly 20% uh, in 2024 seeing favorable economics to 100% of the customers seeing favorable economics by 2024 if the combined energy efficiency plus technology improvement case is realized. And I would note that on the technology improvement case, we're already ahead of the DOE targets. So this is a very disruptive uh, potential customer-empowered system that we could be emerging into here in a very short order. Can I back you up just a few steps here? I mean, one of the underlying assumptions in your report, I think, is that electricity prices are going to go up. That In every scenario that you envision on a base case basis, people are expecting electricity prices to go up fairly substantially over the next 10 years. That's right, Jigger. We looked at a range of, uh, of electricity prices um, from the EIA uh, base case, which is essentially a flat uh, rate, to uh, more akin to the current uh, progression right now, depending on which sector you're looking at, we're escalating at, a, at somewhere between a 2.7 and 2.9% real rate. We analyzed all the way up to a 3% bill rate. Um, so, so that's definitely a, uh, you know, a driver, um, but, but there is no sign, again, in recent years that we are in any way bending that curve downward. And in fact, if you look at the tax components, uh, that are being reallocated to, to utility costs, that's moving even faster than uh, the uh, 3% rate in order to, for municipalities and, and states to recover against their existing budget deficits. Yeah, I just think that when you think about some of the conversations and some of the responses to your report, a lot of what people are arguing about is the baseline. I mean, for instance, when First Energy CEO gave his speech uh, on April 8th um, to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, he sort of bemoaned why we weren't back to the 1970s and doing everything, you know, sort of the old way because the old way was better and why are you forcing us to change? But I think a lot of these customers are looking at solar and storage because their electricity rates are going up faster than inflation and they're sort of saying, how do I get off this roller coaster ride? That that's exactly right, and that that upward pressure, right, in rates for a variety of different reasons, um, combined with the downward cost reductions that we're seeing on the technology side, are really what creates this, uh, you know, kind of collision of paradigms from the the regulatory rate system that that Tony Alexander talked about from the 70s in his recent discussion to to um, you know the the economic possibilities for emerging attackers in many of the innovation innovators that are actually deploying these combined solar and storage systems um, you know I was actually out in Hawaii over the the Christmas holiday to visit some relatives there and I was shocked that turning back to football, I was in the middle of the Rose Bowl game, um, and there was a commercial that came on uh, by a company called Poncho Solar that literally said, leave Helco behind. We can provide you a third-party financed solar plus storage uh, uh, option that will allow you to cut your tie to the grid completely. And that's the type of you know, kind of model that we can expect uh, coming here forward. Certainly Hawaii is in the throes of that challenge today, but within 10 years, quite conceivably, we'll be in the throes of that for much bigger markets where we're talking about literally millions of customers 
at risk, um, uh, which is going to create an empowerment cycle that dramatically shifts the expectations of the grid to be much more focused uh, on the customer than uh, potentially uh, Tony Alexander's remarks from the other day were. Well, and that brings yeah. me to the framing of the report. So your conclusion is that solar and storage is a real and present threat to utilities. And when you say that, you're framing it in the context of grid defection, people actually leaving their utility relationship. Now, you're not necessarily saying that people are going to leave the grid entirely, um, but the possibility is there. So why frame it in this way of grid defection? What are you trying to get at there? Yeah, so we certainly do not believe that economic parity equates to defection, right? There are lots of barriers that exist as to why and when somebody would leave the grid. But it, it does get to this theme of customer empowerment, right? And when a customer has the ability to leave, it fundamentally shifts the dialogue with the utility to one of customer value and one of the ability of of utilities to provide against the direct needs, whether that be resilience or reliability or greenness, there will be a greater accountability and, and a uh, threshold of cost that a utility has to perform against or risk losing their business entirely. John, um, I used to work for a utility. I started at a utility in the 80s, and that was before computers, so it was before and before call centers. So if there was an outage, a customer would call. We would pick up the phone, have a card we'd write it down on, and the guys would say, "Oh yeah, I know where Ms. Moore lives. I'll go down and check her, you know, check her line for her." People and, and meter readers knew their customers. Um, you know, consumers knew the people who served them. There was a level of of trust and intimacy that doesn't exist anymore, really, because everything has become uh, much more computerized. The call centers are located in the middle of the state rather than in district offices. And so my sense is the utility has a lot of work to do to get back that relationship to prevent defection and prevent people from thinking they can leave and try to, and try to gain back their trust. Yeah, no, that, that's right, Catherine. There is, there's certainly, you know, utilities are trusted brands within their regions in many cases because they've been longtime stakeholders. But the notion that, that a utility needs to learn and understand the customer needs is probably the, the most powerful element of this whole transition, right? Where, uh, in effect, there isn't a personal relationship between most utilities and their customers, and they don't understand exactly what's valued and why and how to better deliver their services to satisfy customers. And, and so, you know, the current system has been reduced down to a set of, of very discrete high-level metrics that the commission looks at as opposed to an assembly of individual relationships that, that really um, are going to, again, drive a lot of this change here forward and enable a, you know, a whole constellation of options for uh, individuals when they think about how they're going to meet their personal um, living needs, right? Whether, they, whether it's cool or warmth or, or you know, uh, charging electronic devices or whatever it is to increase mobility, there is a fundamental, fundamentally different set of value drivers than simply selling kilowatt hours that are going to be part of whatever emerging business model utilities can shape uh, and participate in here um, evolves going forward, or they'll lose their customers, right? Um, so there is a, there's a dramatic need to shift the whole dialogue. 
Uh, John, one of the underlying points in your report that you mentioned is the fact that you guys also sort of right-size the load in one of the um, scenarios. And you know, RMI has been a huge champion of energy efficiency and and um, and cost-effectively deploying that efficiency. It does seem like um, that is finally catching on on a retrofit basis. And of course, it's been there for building codes and um, appliance standards for a long time. But one of the things that we talked about in the last podcast is this emergence of zero energy buildings and how um, it's you know not just a trophy project anymore. There's a lot of folks who actually think they can cost effectively put in zero energy buildings. Does RMI sort of see that as another uh, you know scenario here? Absolutely. I, you know this the movement towards zero net energy buildings as um, uh, you know a, a fully balanced subsystem is potentially one of the biggest disruptors here of the electricity system going forward. And obviously it, it, it will affect the new build construction before the retrofit. But, um, you know, customers, in some ways, the customer that has very little need of the grid but is still connected um, can be more dangerous to the utility than a customer that completely defects because the economics and the infrastructure that are required to support that customer are, can be quite large, uh, um, and so you know, kind of earning the return against those large investments um, in a in a way that's where the optics appear fair um, is is going to be a challenging case that utilities need to make, right? I mean, the the main thing here that I see is that I mean, RMI has brought together utility CEOs and others to have this conversation for the fast few years or so. But uh, you know, the main thing I see is that it doesn't really seem like there's an easy way to game this system. I mean, if you want to increase demand charges, you can, but then you save that money on storage. And if you want to increase fixed charges, well, then people are going to be even more incentivized to disconnect. And so, I mean, it seems like part of the report is saying. You know, guys, you can't, you know, sort of figure out a way to engineer your rates around this. You sort of have to finally deal with this head on. That's exactly right, Jigger. And I I would say fundamentally these systems are going to create value, right? And as soon as you hit that parity point and the economic shift in favor of the uh, hybrid system, there's value there to be captured. And the question for the utility and for the developer or the technologist and for the customer is how exactly do you share that value, right, going forward so that everyone gets a piece of it? Because these systems, strategically placed, can also reduce, you know, voltage sags in the system and manage some of the the internal, uh, you know, kind of workings of the grid. They can help defer capital, et cetera, et cetera. So there is there is real value that can be created if we can create the right regulatory construct for everyone to share in it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So one of the sticky issues right now are interconnection rules. So in New Jersey, there are storage companies that are trying to connect on the distribution side of the grid, and, and yet they're, they're operating in the wholesale market. So they're actually functioning as, as a participant in the wholesale market, and they're being leveraged uh, by the utilities with demand charges. So then it stops being cost-effective. And Solar City in California is having a really rough time because of interconnection fees, because of special metering fees that, that the utilities are looking to leverage on them. So it seems that you know, there, there are going to be some policy issues that are going to need to be kind of sussed out. Um, you know, in order in order for us to really be able to meet these these cost projections that you even suggest, because all of these other policy barriers create enormous cost issues as well. 
what are you hearing from utilities? I mean, you RMI tries to do uh, its best to bring together a lot of different stakeholders, including utilities. I'm curious, when you outline a report like this, when you go to stakeholders and you talk about these issues, do you feel do you, do utilities feel like you're talking at them or talking with them? What is the sense you get? Well, having uh, just come out of a utility conversation earlier this morning, I can say, um, you know, there's thoughtful engagement on this. And the path forward for utilities is by no means clear, right? They're they're responsible for providing a public good. They have a responsibility and obligation to do so in an equitable way so that everyone has has the ability to partake of the same offers. Um, But there is... uh, there's a keen interest, and I think the theme that resonates is around the fact that, one, there's value, and number two, that this customer-centric focus is something that has to emerge and they have to get better at in order to be you know, the respected business partner and, and service provider here going forward. And that's, um, you know, the industry is at the cusp of a very large technological shift. Um, but even under you know, kind of the advent of of these types of options, we at RMI still see the the need for a grid, uh, you know, large scale to to bring together those low-cost central station renewables and central station uh, power plants that are required um, to marry that together with uh, the distributed options that will emerge as well. And so it's in everybody's best interest to have a thriving grid uh, that enables more transaction around this new value that's going to be created from, uh, you know, the many, many relationships that will develop, right? There, there is a need for us to think about a world where uh, we will have many different suppliers and many different customers all engaging in transactions on a daily basis and that they may shift roles day to day, week to week, month to month. That's, that is, you know, kind of constructing that is the intriguing challenge and, and where, you know, many folks who are engaged in our electricity innovation lab and beyond with RMI are really trying to focus their energies. Well, John Kreitz, Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, John is the Managing Director of the Rocky Mountain Institute. We will link to that grid defection report on our website. I encourage everyone to check it out if they haven't already. And uh, John joined us from New York. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Let's talk about our second story now. Yesterday, the world hit another grim high water mark, or high carbon mark, I guess is what I should say. Scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration reported that atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations hit 402 parts per million, the highest level in 800,000 years. Meanwhile, the Working Group 2 of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was out recently with its latest assessment of the state of the climate, and I'm sure no one was expecting an improvement over the last report, but the conclusion is certainly not good. While the new report admits some subtle uncertainties in future prediction, the assessment of 12,000 climate studies shows distinct and measured changes to our oceans, permafrost and glaciers, hydrological cycles, crops, and a range of species. That is happening today. 
if you want a vivid image of what the IPCC is saying might happen by the middle to the end of the century, open up the Bible and read the book of Revelation. Interestingly, ExxonMobil released a report days later concluding that a low-carbon global economy was unlikely and that it would continue making investments in fossil fuels as if there were few constraints on greenhouse gases. Jigger, as the uh, former CEO of the Carbon War Room, you are a leading climate wealth advocate. What did you think when you read the newest IPCC report and, uh, more importantly, Exxon's response to that? Well, I think when you think about the progress that we're making in the electric utility grid, it gives you some hope. But, you know, look, I think that if you've got to be honest with yourself, we're not really making that much progress on transportation fuels. Um, you know, when you think about the penetration levels of natural gas in this country, there's still more natural gas vehicles in Ukraine than there are in the United States, even after the Boone Pickens plan. So ExxonMobil has every right to be you know, sort of confident that all of its hydrocarbons will be burned. But I do think that there's an actual um, middle ground here. I mean, I, I do think that ExxonMobil could actually get compensated for all of those hydrocarbons without burning them in vehicles in the future. If we really do get new technology that's been around for, you know, over a decade or more, into the hands of consumers to use less fuel and to use other fuels, ExxonMobil might be able to find more high-value uses of oil and natural gas that are better for the environment, whether it's plastics or other things. Yeah, so I think that when you look at scenarios outlined by the IPCC itself, ExxonMobil's future scenario matches pretty well with that. I mean, there's a new report that is coming out, I think, in the coming week that shows transportation could soon be the biggest single source of global emissions. And they're currently about 22% of the global total. They could double by the middle of the century. And ExxonMobil certainly sees the value in petroleum use there. Um, but what I thought was interesting about this is that it's sort of a document outlining Exxon's political calculations. I mean, it really doesn't think that a global effort to limit fossil fuels is going to amount to anything in the coming decades, and it plans to invest accordingly. And I think that Exxon deserves a little bit of credit here for opening itself up and taking a look at the impact of its fossil fuel development, which is what investors have demanded. But they basically said here, we don't think the world is going to act and limit our carbon dioxide pollution or greenhouse gas emissions in any meaningful way. Yeah, look, I think Tony Alexander really feels like, um, you know, from First Energy, that we've actually designed something that could replace him. Now, he may not think it's going to work or whatnot, but we certainly have captured the imagination of his customers, which forced him to respond to our vision for the electric utility grid. Um, ExxonMobil, I don't think, feels the same way. Um, around what the strategies are that have been put forward in the transportation space. And, you know, I think the people doing the best work on that is the low-carbon fuel standard work um, that's being done in California. And now um, it looks like, you know, Washington State is picking that up. But look, I mean, the thing is, is that the wind and solar technologies that we're talking about are over 30 years old. They might actually be, you know, like we figured out deployment strategies and finance and all that stuff, but they're 30 years old. What really forced their hand was renewable portfolio standards. Today, when you look at the renewable fuel standard, it's sort of wishy-washy and not really there, in my opinion, and we're going to actually have to, you know, revisit it and figure out where we take it from here. But, you know, we do have technology. I mean, natural gas engines have been around for a very long time. And, and when you think about the T. Boone Pickens plan, 
it hasn't actually come to fruition. Even though truckers would save 60% or 70% on their fuel costs, they haven't gone because there's a chicken and egg problem and a lot of you know, refueling stations haven't put in natural gas pumps yet because they don't know that their demand is there. So, I mean, I do think there's a policy problem here. Yeah, I do too. And I, and I also don't think it's just a bunch of activists. I think there, there are a lot of mayors taking positions. A lot of people who are involved in planning systems are, are looking at all of these options. I think if you look at states that are very red states, like Kansas was able to retain its RPS because people actually care about renewable energy from an economic standpoint. And all of the economics have been driven by policy. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, the, the price of technology coming down has been helpful, but people do not want to give up their clean energy policies in states. And so states also like Michigan, that's, that is, you know, dominated by Republicans is renewable energy, um, both on the generation side and the manufacturing side uh, are a key part of the Michigan economy. Well, the ExxonMobil report, I think, is a corporate benchmark because large investors and, and policymakers have encouraged a big company like ExxonMobil, which three years ago denied that climate change existed, to take a look at its fossil fuel assets and ask if it had any potential stranded assets. But I think this is a really important document in that it spells out that one of the biggest fossil fuel producers in the world does not think that there's going to be any policy pressure to limit emissions in a meaningful way by the middle of the century. And, uh, you know, that should scare some people. Yeah, also, uh, Jigger, this Carbon Asset Risk Initiative, where there's 70 global institutional investors with $3 trillion worth of assets, I mean, they're involved in this divestment campaign. And I, I, I think that you're actually are going to start seeing some of the large investors uh, change horses. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I certainly think you're going to see divestment, but is it actually going to affect ExxonMobil? No, they have absolutely no shortage of capital coming from their own cash flow. If everyone decided to sell their stock, ExxonMobil would just buy it all back from them um, and become a private company. What I see it hopefully doing is shifting money away from Exxon towards um, good stuff because we actually need more and more and more money to go after the stuff that we care about. And, you know, and while there's plenty of money in solar and wind right now, there's not enough money in, you know, uh, renewable fuels and, um, and you know, alternatives to transport. Let's talk about our third topic now, financing. Where is the money going to come from? How do you get it flowing? My former organization, the Center for American Progress, is out with a new report calling for new ways the White House can support more foreign direct investment and boost new mechanisms like yield codes, master limited partnerships, and real estate investment trusts. So as we've discussed a number of times with John Podesta, founder of the Center for American Progress in the White House, there is a real chance for some of these ideas proposed to make their way into the administration. Podesta himself has said that financing is something that was left out of the president's climate plan, and they're seeking ideas and looking at how they can pursue that area. So uh, there's some interesting ideas in here. The first one is the creation of this high-level task force at the Department of Commerce and Treasury to promote things like yield codes or other public market financing mechanisms like real estate investment trusts. Jigger is... Is that something that could be of use? I mean, is that really needed? Do, do, do you see private investors demanding that sort of thing? Well, I mean, I think that the theme of the conference at Bloomberg New Energy Finance this year was that we've solved this problem for solar and wind. 
Um, and so with the yield codes that are going to go public this year, as well as one company who has figured out, they think, a way to get around uh, congressional legislation uh, to be able to put out their own MLP, um, there does seem to be a lot of folks who believe that they've figured out a workaround from you know the fact the White House has been so anti figuring out finance here. But well, I do what, what do you mean? Go into that again. Like when you say anti figuring out finance, we've talked about this before, but I think it's helpful to flesh out what you mean there. Well, look, I mean Renewable Energy Trust just announced 125 million dollars from Blue Mountain to basically collect that money, aggregate assets, and then and then uh, flow to Yieldco. They did that because they had to pull their application from the IRS because the White House and the Treasury Department told the IRS no more uh, letters of comfort for REIT structures after Hannon Armstrong. And so that was an express written rule that came from Gene Sperling and from the Treasury Secretary to say we don't want to see that level of innovation in real estate investment trusts. Now, you can't have it both ways. Either you're for this stuff, which they can actually fix still right away, or you're against it. And so I think when they're, they decide to put together a high-level panel – that's a good thing. Maybe these guys are just completely uneducated over there at the White House, and if they had a high-level panel, there'd be some folks over there that actually could educate them and put some knowledge up in there. Well, one of the issues is that they need to figure out what tools are in their existing legal authorization. So REITs, yeah, should be a tool that they already have authorization to do. Treasury should be able to make a determination. That's something they can do. But there are other things that are going to require Congress, like clean renewable energy bonds. Um, those, you know, there's authority to do it, but there's no funding for it. So you have to get appropriations from Congress to, to actually fulfill these CREBs. Um, there was a, there was a, um, in Congress passed out of the Senate, out of a Senate and energy, the Clean Energy Development Administration that would have um, used credit enhancement to drive down the risk of securitization. That would have been a really nice tool. Again, that requires Congress, um, any kind of bonding authority that goes beyond what, what they already have um, in Treasury is going to need Congress. So it's not just in the hands of the White House, um, but they do need to suss out kind of what, what tools and authorities do they already have. And that's what I'm trying to figure out here. Like this idea, creating a task force at the Department of Commerce or in Treasury, do those types of bodies actually make a significant difference and influence internal policymaking at the White House? Yes. I mean, I think what Richard Kaufman was trying to do for two years was educate these folks on the fact that giving the renewable energy sector the same rights and privileges that the oil and gas sector has enjoyed since the passive active loss rules were put in place in 1986 would be a good thing for this industry and it should be a priority for this administration they deliberately chose not to pursue that course now if they actually get educated with some a high-minded panel or whatever it is that would be good for us i think as an industry i think it it's sad that it's coming in year six of the administration but you know, it is what it is. You sort of take what you can get from these, these folks. Yeah. I can say that having worked at CAP, there is a, you know, a very c close line between people who are making decisions and people who are um, putting out these policy ideas. And I think that they do make an impact on getting to high level people when they put out papers like this. And, you know, often policy papers like this can sit and languish on a shelf somewhere. And CAP is very effective in taking its communications tools and connections and saying, here are some ideas that you can push to make a difference. And 
I, I would think that a task force like this is something the administration could look at. And in theory, CAP has enough influence to get something like this on the table. Yeah, I also think there is an enormous amount of talent in the federal government. And so if you look at the Foreign Service officers at Department of Commerce, those guys do a great job in the chambers of commerce um, abroad, bringing U.S. companies, U.S. CEOs over to um, to to try to make sure that they can make money abroad. But using those same people, and this was one of the suggestions in the paper, to do the reverse, which is to get companies um, from overseas to invest in the U.S. And there are a lot of companies doing that now, certainly Japanese, Korean, uh, German companies are investing, Chinese. Um, I mean, using those folks who really understand the business environment in all the countries in which they serve would be using an asset quite wisely. This is kind of a funny issue for me because when the stimulus package was just getting passed, I sat down with an executive from Iberdrola's wind division from Spain, and he said, oh, we're really looking forward to this stimulus package because we're going to come in and develop projects and do the best we can to uh, take advantage of Obama's stimulus. And it turned out that a lot of the projects that were being developed were being developed by foreign companies using foreign products because we didn't have a great domestic wind manufacturing base there. And over time, we had a lot of foreign companies invest in manufacturing capacity here, but there was this huge political kerfuffle around whether foreign companies were taking advantage of American incentives to develop projects here. And I think it's up for debate what the net benefit of that is, given the breakdown of manufacturing and the economic benefit of the project operating itself. But you know, this foreign direct investment idea sounds great, but it also has political risks as well. And we've seen a lot of foreign companies uh, anger members of Congress. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think that that's true. But I think people care more about using Chinese panels than they do Chinese money. I think if Chinese money came in here and built a whole bunch of renewable fuel standard um, cellulosic biomass plants, I think people would be perfectly happy. Yeah, that's jobs. That's U.S. jobs. One final issue I want to talk about is what kind of tax incentives that we need to see. And I've heard some folks in the progressive policymaking community say, let's push Obama to pass a permanent ITC or a permanent PTC. I know the president has supported this permanent production tax credit, which seems completely absurd to me, given how steadily wind and solar costs have dropped. We are all supportive of a phase out rather than a permanent credit, I believe. And, uh, you know, I've, I've told people that I've talked to, I just don't think this is a good idea. A, because it will cause windfall profits for developers when costs continue to come down. It doesn't encourage costs to come down further uh, medium term. And politically, it just looks terrible because when the president is advocating to get rid of permanent tax credits for the oil and gas sector, why would you push a permanent tax credit for renewables? So uh, that is something that I know is talk being talked about in terms of what kind of financing they want to push to the financing options they want to push to the White House. But I just think that one in particular is a really bad idea. Yeah, that is so not going to happen. That's just never going to happen. So, <laughs> so I think I think you're going to see, though, more regulation on the state side, um, regulatory constructs with state utility regulators, more from FERC, 
certainly the from EPA, the rule is going to have a huge impact. And that's going to bring people to this country. I, um, I heard a panel when I was at Bloomberg, um, where a German company, Unicos, that's doing a lot of energy storage in Germany, says that, you know, this, the interconnection rules over here are too messed up, we're going to come over to the US because the, you know, what FERC decides actually makes sense. And we think the regulatory construct is actually is better in the US, which was astounding for me to hear, but uh, it was interesting. I think the bigger question is, you know, ACOR played this very important role, I think, in the 2005 and 2007 Energy Policy Act. And I'm trying to understand who is it on the regulatory side from, you know, our nonprofits side is actually going to lead this charge for the 2.0 of supporting climate change solutions. I mean, so if we decide to phase out tax credits, who's going to be fighting for, you know, anaerobic digesters and offshore wind, for instance, to keep those tax credits. I mean, how do we make sure that the solar and wind industry play nice together this time around? I, I just, I'm trying to figure out, you know, who's basically sort of leading this charge. Well, not many people because the solar and wind industries are the ones with the lobbying influence and all the other industries just aren't getting their message out there. They should all hire Catherine. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's finish up the show and uh, tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, what kind of stories do you have this week? Well, you know, what was interesting to me is that they chose Stephen Colbert to re replace <laughs> David Letterman. And I'm trying to figure out, do you think Stephen Colbert is going to stay Stephen Colbert or is he going to become himself and do interviews and all that stuff? I don't know that he can change. I don't know. Anyway, I, I think sorry. it'll be a hybrid of his normal self, his normal comedic self and his – Colbert Report personality. I remember when he first started the Colbert Report and I heard some interviews with him, he was actually out of character and talking about why he was developing the Colbert Report character itself. And over time, he got so comfortable being in the skin of the Colbert Report character, he never broke out. Um, but I think he's probably going to go beyond that and be his normal comedic self. Uh, I think it's really, really interesting choice, though. Yeah, he's um, I met him uh, at a fundraiser when his sister was running for Congress and he's a really different person. He's very quiet and, you know, not at all the way he is as a satirist. Catherine, what is your story this week? So uh, there is a lot of good news, bad news, depending on which side of the wind industry you're on. Uh, DOE uh, came out with uh, the figures that showed that the cost of wind has gone down 43% over the last four years. It's almost 5% of the electricity uh, generated in the U.S. Um, it's, it's at $84 a megawatt hour, so it's achieved grid parity globally with natural gas. Uh, that that cuts the other way when the when the wind industry wants to get their tax extension, um, and in, and last year the wind industry reports that they um, they lost thirty thousand jobs because of the uncertainty over the production tax credit. Certainly, the company that I had worked closely with, Gamesa Wind, they just shut down their plants here in the U.S. and are moving them to China and Spain because the you know because of the uncertainty. Um, so the big thing this week was that the Senate Finance Committee did pass a two year extension of the wind production tax credit. Um, it'll probably go to the floor in a couple of weeks, the floor of the Senate in a couple of weeks. But the House uh, is still just, um, it's really, really uncertain. I don't know if they're going to really get this. Um, 
because if, you know, the House isn't going to do anything before the elections, nobody's going to step out and jeopardize anything they're doing before the elections. And then during the lame duck, if uh, if the Senate stays um, Democrat, you know, controlled by the Democrats, then likely they'll do an extension that is maybe not completely dissimilar from the Senate. But if the Senate flips, which there is a possibility it will, uh, I don't know what's going to happen to all these clean energy tax credits, including wind. So mm. we're watching it really closely. Here we go again. I feel like we've been having this conversation since the 1990s. Yes, that's been part of the problem. <laughs> well, I'm going to talk about O-Power. Um, while everyone was paying attention to O-Power's IPO last week, a little piece of news came out that no one seemed to be covering. So O-Power is teaming up with this water efficiency company called WaterSmart, which is itself labeled the O-Power of Water. Um, and it's helping administer the program, which sends out home water reports to residents in Palo Alto about water conservation. WaterSmart has been doing this for, I think, around a dozen utilities in cities in California and Texas. And this is the first time it's teamed up with O-Power. And since O-Power went public, everyone is now asking how the company is going to expand and meet investor expectations. And water seems like a really natural place for it to go. I've talked to some former employees who were high up at the company, and they've said that O-Power has talked about other verticals like water or healthcare even. O-Power says that this is just about maintaining continuity in the Palo Alto program because it's already running an electricity program there. So, uh, But it, it does seem to open up some compelling speculation about how the company might expand, and water is just a really natural place for it to go. I think it's great. WaterSmart's a great company. I think it's a good move for them to team up. All right, that's all for the show this week. For links to some of the stories and reports we discussed, go on over to greentechmedia.com. While you're there, subscribe to our newsletter. We have so much content coming out every day, you can get it right there in your inbox each afternoon. Of course, you should subscribe to the podcast, too, if you aren't already. Listening on the web interface is so old-fashioned. You can take us on your mobile device by subscribing to our feed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and Swell Radio, and rate us and review us while you're at it. If you want to contact us about show ideas or comments, email me at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com, and I'll pass your thoughts around. And that's all I've got for housekeeping. Uh, Catherine, enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks, and I think we're on vacation next week because I'm road tripping with a couple of my kids through Tennessee. Have fun. I'm going to be out in Arizona for our solar summit. So we will loop back around the following week. Sorry, folks, for the spotty podcast, but we're going to have a consistent schedule again soon. In the meantime, you can just listen to this one three or four times over. Jigger, have a great week. We will uh, catch you on the flip side. Thanks. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next time.